So God is good all the time. And yet there are times in our walk with him and in our journey through this life that don't always feel good. And some things are just plain difficult to endure. It's part of living in a broken world and being broken people. And every year, for all of us, it's going to be a mix of those sorts of joys and sorrows, those highs and lows, the victories and the defeats. And uh, this morning, we want to acknowledge that, that fact and intercede a little bit for those who are looking at 2024 with more hope because they had such a hard time in 2023, um, lifting up and remembering those who struggled and who continue to struggle uh, as we move into a new year. So if you would pray with me. Lord, we cry to you in our struggles and in our pain. In our midst today are those who know the awful loss of loved ones passed on. Some celebrations this year were missing familiar faces. Beloved faces. And we weep over death. As Jesus did over the death of his friend Lazarus. Even though God we know dying is not the end for those whose trust is in you. That those who believe in Christ will live even though they die. It still hurts. And it still leaves us feeling empty. And longing for just a little more time. Or opportunity. Father, I pray you might comfort the grieving today with an assurance of eternal life, that life that is and is to come for all who put their faith in you. And I ask you, Lord, to mix into our sorrow the exceeding great joy of the time and the place where suffering will be no more, where sickness is not known, where you, in fact, will wipe away all the tears from our eyes, where death is fully and finally defeated, as it gives way to the beautiful, everlasting life that you promise and that you intend for those you love. Father, in our fellowship with those who sense the weight of the years and their labor, these tents that you've given us were not meant to last forever in this form. And it can be so frustrating to be so powerless at times over our physical decline to be made to slow down, sometimes to be made to stop, to not be able to do what we once did, some of the things we enjoy. Lord, draw near to us as these bodies break down and fill us with the hope of bodies that one day will not. We thank you, Father, for the promise that one day our perishable bodies will put on the imperishable. One day our mortal bodies will put on the immortal. And as we draw closer to that day moment by moment, as our literal might wanes, we pray that you might then be all our joy and strength. Remind us, Father, that we are loved because of what we do. Our worth is not wrapped up in our productivity. Help us to gracefully accept the limitations of age and conditions, offering what we can for your glory and being content with that. Lord, in this room today, our hearts challenged and stretched thin by unanticipated trials. 
The rogue waves of life are real to us. And for a time, they can turn the vessel of our lives upside down. We pray today for you to right those who are floundering because of the serious struggles that have come upon them. Cancer diagnoses, betrayals, financial losses, prodigal children. Lord, the list could go on and on. Remind us, please, that whatever catches us by surprise is not a surprise to you and that you are with us and that you are always working for the good of those you love and who love you. And Father, that you are even able to redeem our trials and the experiences that we would never choose if we had a choice. You are able to take them and use them to shape us into the image of your son and then to bring you glory. So when circumstances lead us to despair, Lord, to believe that our lives are out of control, would you help us to remember who is in control? And as we believe, we pray for you to help our unbelief. Father, some in our midst today are raging against their weakness and inability to stop doing the things they know they should not be doing. And we pray, Jesus, on behalf of these dear brothers and sisters for your deliverance in their lives. We know that whoever the Son sets free is free indeed. So we ask you to free those who are heavy laden today, those who are weighed down in their struggle against sin, those who are caught in their trespasses. There is no good work done by might or power. It is by your Spirit. So, Father, by your Spirit, we ask today that you might set the captives free in this place. And Lord, you know in our body are those for whom holding on to faith has been a struggle. They might not be able to put a finger on it, but for some reason or reasons, the fire of their faith has gone cold. It has been reduced to a few smoldering embers. Oh Lord, a bruised reed you will not break, and a smoldering wick you will not snuff out. You are so compassionate, so tender, so kind, so caring for us in our afflictions. Father, help these dear ones who are struggling to hold on to faith. Help them to fan into flame this gift of faith that you have given them. Father, we pray this would be the beginning of a deeper, more meaningful walk with you. This crisis of faith, this struggle, this trial would be the beginning of something more joyous, more welcome, more desirable, in service to you. Lord, we ask that you would revive our weak hearts, that you would restore to us the joy of our salvation, that you would fill us with your spirit. And we ask these things in the powerful name of Jesus, who taught his disciples to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Well, the hymnal's full of great songs, but I got to say, this one that we're about to sing has to be in the top five, maybe the top three. I have several favorites. I've been around long enough now, you know what they are. Great is thy faithfulness. And, uh, 
There's a song we don't sing anymore that, that's just in an older hymnal, but I love it. Are ye able? Are ye able? Said the master. And then there's this one. Um, it is well with my soul. And one of the reasons that I love singing this song with all you people is that we know under, because in Jesus, it, can be, it doesn't have to be right with our lives to be well with our souls. And that's what this is. Life isn't going to be 100% going the way that we want it, but it can still be well with our souls. And, of course, the third verse is particularly powerful. That the reason it's well with our souls is because of all that Jesus has done. So let's stand and sing this one together. It is well with my soul. I pray this is true for you today.
It's time for the little ones that are heading to Children's Church to go that way. the church we even report on, uh, what we've done, and as we stand on the brink of a season of new opportunities, we, t we look forward. We've made some plans. Certainly we have made some plans as a church. I suspect you've made some plans as individuals and, and as families, things that we want to accomplish, things that we hope to do. But I wonder, and, and I posit this to you this morning, have you thought much about or do you have a clear sense of, as you think about what you've done, why you've done it, or if you think about what you want to do, why do you want to do it? Why do we do what we do? There's a confluence of stuff that I've been reading to and reading and listening to um, most recently that have led me to think like this. What is our motivation for ministry. As we think about ministry in a new year, what is it that's driving us? I listened recently to Ed Stetzer's podcast with David Platt. Some of you are familiar with David Platt. He has a new book out called Don't Hold Back. And uh, like all of David Platt's work, it's a, it's, a challenging, it's a challenging book. It was a challenging podcast, a challenge to be faithful as Christians to endure and not to slow down to, but but to press forward how do how do we remain faithful in this context and by the way if you're wondering where we're headed next lord willing in our study uh, together it, it'll be second timothy so if you want to get a jump on things we're moving into the epistle the pastoral epistle of second timothy which not coincidentally has that same theme faithful endurance so David Platt and Ed Stetzer, great podcast. David Platt's church has undergone, undergone a lot of struggles over the last few years. If you're familiar with him, you know what some of those struggles are. He's an awesome leader, an inspirational speaker, a wonderful pastor, and a massive advocate for missions. And you think about David Platt, and I think if ever anybody would have a church that wouldn't have any trouble, it'd be David Platt. I mean, he's so dynamic and he's so gifted and, and all these, and yet David Platt 
has labored faithfully with his church over the last few years through some serious, serious struggles. And he comes out of that saying, don't hold back. Keep going. Don't hold back. And then not too long ago, I spent some time with an article and then a, a podcast from uh, uh, the Malfers group. Not sure if you're familiar with them. It's talking about the high rates, really what you would call a post-pandemic exodus of pastors out of the ministry. Um, and th that, that's what their article and that's what their podcast was all about, that the numbers of pastors leaving ministry are significant. They write this, a striking number of pastors are contemplating leaving their current church or the ministry altogether. In 2021, 21% 20 of pastors had thought about leaving their church, but by 2023, this number increased to 38%. In 2021, 38% of those surveyed reported that they'd considered leaving the ministry altogether. By 2023, that was 51%. That's a lot of quitting. And it's a lot of thinking about quitting that's going on out there. And then a month or so ago, I read this book by uh, Jim Davis and Michael Graham. And I, this falls into that category. I say it often. It's probably not humorous, but I do mean it. I read this stuff so you don't have to. <laughs> the name of this book is The Great Dechurching. Who's leaving? Why are they going? And what will it take to bring them back? So for years, you and I have heard all the, the doomsday stories about the condition of the Christian church in America, how it is in decline. Finally, somebody has compiled a lot of research, uh, current data, and as some have put it in, in quotations, it's worse than you think. Um, the authors note that between 1870 and 1895, so 25-year period after the Civil War, Christianity in America grew by leaps and bounds. The population grew, and so, so did the number of Christians. Like, it increased by 12% nationally in that 25-year window. It was the biggest religious shift to date in our country's history, more significant than, than the revivals and the Great Awakenings and things. This, this is how significant the shift was in that 25-year window after the Civil War between 1870 and 1895. And now they're saying over the last 25 years, we have experienced a religious shift that is 1.25 times larger but going in the opposite direction. So in our country, what that equates to is that about 40 million people have stopped attending church. They write this, more people have left the church in the last 25 years than all the new people who became Christians from the First Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening, and Billy Graham Crusades combined. And that's a phenomenon that has really taken hold since or at least most rapidly since the 1990s. So the decline is more precipitous than even the data that I just shared with you. It's a pretty steep drop off. That's our present context. So those sound like extraordinary times to you, they do to me. So extraordinary times call for extraordinary measures, don't they? One thing would be for sure, however we envision doing church moving forward, it can't be the same old, same old. It's not business as usual because that's not the climate that we live in. We live in a very polarizing, climate. That's why so many pastors are thinking about leaving. Can you imagine trying to shepherd your church to the last election and here we got another one coming with all those strong feelings and trying to shepherd a bunch of people through all the various and diverse opinions over COVID 
And then people are just exhausted from that stuff. I mean, there's good reasons for this. We live in a polarizing culture. Uh, pastors are leaving and people are leaving. And so the question is, a reasonable question is, how do we not leave? Or how do we press on? Or how do we persevere? Or why do we persevere? Most recently, I've been sweetly challenged by a, uh, the writing of a fellow named Jeremy Wrightbull. And he's got this book out. It's, called, it's titled, Pastor Jesus is Enough. Sweet, sweet book. And a great exposition, really, of, of the first few chapters of the book of Revelation. And as those things particularly relate to pastors, um, Jesus is the motivation. Jesus is the end and the means of Christianity. We love because he first loved us. We live and we serve to see that he is exalted and to see that he is honored in this world. We minister in his power. It's the power of Christ in us. It's not our own strength, our own giftedness. It's Jesus in us and through us. In fact, we read in John chapter 15, apart from him, what is it that we can do apart from him? Nothing. Right? So we need Jesus. Jesus is the motivation. Jesus is the reason that we carry on. Right ball encourages us to bear in mind, regardless of circumstances, regardless of the ebbs and the flows of Christian ministry, that Jesus is enough. And the answer then to those questions, how do we press on in another year? Why do we persevere? Why do we do what we do? Is the title of this message today, For the Love of Jesus. We do what we do for the love of Jesus. Open your Bibles with me once more, if you would, to our scripture. Rachel, I, I don't think you have to feel bad about weeping over this uh, particular passage. There's a reason I didn't want to read it out loud. Uh, honestly, there are certain pa passages in the Bible, aren't there, that just the import of them, it, 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 is, it just strikes our emotions. This is one of them. This is one of those where the, the words are so powerful, and yet they just begin to capture the beauty of Christ. They begin to capture the power, and they're so strong, and they're just, just a sliver of what is really there. But open, open your Bible, if you would, again to, to Revelation and chapter 1. Most of you know, I think, this is, this is uh, written by John. Probably could have had Rachel read the ninth verse, and you would have known that. But anyway, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. 
And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. <laughs> Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars of the angels of the seven churches, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And to the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not found, and, and, are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Oh, there's a couple of sermons in there, and I'm going to leave them. I want to go back to that tree thing, you know, the beginning and the end where we ha uh, but anyway. What do, what, do we, what do we capture just from that little passage, just from that little piece? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord over everything. He, he, he's Lord over death. He's Lord over hell. He's Lord over his church. He walks among the lampstands. Did you catch that? He walks among the lampstands. What are the lampstands? The lampstands are the churches. What does that say? Jesus is among the churches. Jesus is among us. Jesus walks among his churches. Isn't that an awesome thought? It's not just Emmanuel, God with us, a little baby born and then finally ascended. And where is he? He's here. He's here with his churches. He's here with us. He's here with this church. And he holds the, the stars in his hands. And who are these stars? And the translation says that they are the angels. This word angels actually means messengers. And many people have translated this to believe that Jesus is saying he holds the pastors in his hands. That this is a word to the pastors of the churches. Many theologians believe that to be true. One reason for that is there's a call to repent, and one hardly can envision that an angel's going to need to repent. They're either on the right side or the wrong side, and they're either doing the right thing or they've already chosen. But anyway, that's almost a sermon. I'm not going there. <laughs> Jesus is here. Jesus is among us. Jesus is holding us in his hand. And he sees and he hears what every church that bears his name is doing. And what everybody is up to. And beyond that, beyond just making an observation, he is able to discern the posture of every believer's heart. Did you catch that? What he has against this church in Ephesus that he starts out with isn't that it doesn't look like they're doing good things, is it? Not at all. In fact, 
he notices that they have a good reputation and that they're doing good things. And he knows and he commends them. He commends the work of, of the Ephesian Christians. He commends their toil, which is a word that means holding up. That is their perseverance in times of challenge and trouble. He commends their defense of sound doctrine. He commends the patience that they're displaying while they're being opposed. And they were being opposed. We studied a little bit about Ephesus. We, we know, for one, that Ephesus was an awesome church, but it was also in an awful place, in a way, in terms of what Christianity would have been up against. This church at, at, at Ephesus loved Jesus, started well, and kept doing good things, and outwardly looked like everything was just fine. It has borne up under duress, it has kept the faith, it has not grown weary in well-doing, and yet Christ sees something in them that has to be addressed, and it has to be corrected, something that, that would not have been apparent to them, something that would not have been apparent to a, a general observer either, but something that was true inwardly. Chapter 2, verse 4, they had abandoned their first love. And what has happened to these believers in Ephesus is so very common. The zeal for Jesus. What the old commentators would call the ardor of affection has waned. It, it has faded. The affiliation is there. The association is there. The motivation is gone. Somewhere along the line, unwittingly, they left it. They abandoned it. Their first love. It happens. And it happens, like, subtly in, in ways that it's hard to discern, right? At least for the human heart. At least for the naked eye. Why do we leave our first love, Jesus? Well, there are lots of reasons. Competing interests. Other things capture our hearts. Disappointing life events. Things don't go the way that we want them to, the way that we think we ought to. We pray to God, God, please stop this, and he doesn't, or God, please make this happen, and he chooses not to. It leaves us at odds with God, which is a very uncomfortable place to be and not even something that we're really comfortable voicing out loud, even though the psalmists are. We should get better at that. Spiritual candor is important. But if we don't voice it and if we don't say it, what then happens? Well, we just let the, the love just fades. I'm no longer in love with you the way I was before God because I think you've let me down. I think you failed me. Nobody would say that out loud, but it's in our hearts sometimes. We abandon the first love when we fall out of the practice of the spiritual disciplines, what Justin talked about last week, with these ordinary means of grace. They don't seem to be so wild and captivating, and yet they are the path of spiritual formation. These ordinary means are what position us for God's extraordinary work. But we stop doing them. We don't read the word. We don't pray. We don't fellowship. We don't worship. 
And pretty quick, Jesus is just online with all these other things. The cares of life can come in and weigh us down and just distract us. Distract us from loving the Lord well. Distract us from contemplating on his goodness to us. How powerful is it just to sit and think, how good has God been to me over the course of my years? How he has blessed me, what he has given me, how he has saved me, what he has saved me from, myself mostly. And of course, the first love is abandoned when we choose sin, and we do. When we entertain sin, when we dabble in sin, when we, when we give in to it. We all know what that struggle is. You, it's hard to love Jesus 100% if you're loving something else 100%. So who are we going to live for? What are we going to live for? Even good things, like the ministry itself, can supplant one's love for the Lord. Jeremy Wrightball warns us in this book that I'm reading now. He says, in doing well as a pastor or leading a flourishing church, we can find ourselves in the grip of loving the wrong things. Over the years of faithful, constant ministry, the affections of our hearts can shift from loving Jesus to loving the work. We can move from being passionately devoted to and in love with Jesus to being passionately devoted to and in love with our own ministries. The subtle shift that takes place is a shift, not of our affections, but in the object of our affection. So very often when us Christians find ourselves off track, it is because of loves that are out of order. It is just a, a, a disordered love. Something or someone has become more important to us than Christ. And so the Lord offers his correction in chapter 2, verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent, it's a serious threat. What Jesus is saying is you've got to change direction. If you don't change direction, I'm going to come and I'm going to make it so that you're not a church. Remember, the lampstands are the churches. I'm going to remove the lampstands. So when people say sort of confidently and maybe a little overconfidently or glibly, well, God would never shut down a church. <laughs> yes, he would if it's not a church. And he does when it fails to be a church. And you don't have to be malicious or mean to find yourself in a spot of being somewhere that's no longer a church. You see, it, it happened here, and it looked okay for the longest time if it weren't for the gracious intervention of Jesus to show up and say, listen, I see everything you're doing, and it looks good, but you've got to take a look under the hood here. There's something that you're missing, and it's got to change. And if it doesn't change, I'm not going to bear with this. I'm not going to walk among this. I'm going to remove the lampstand. What strikes me about what Jesus is saying, though, is repent and do the works that you did at first. What strikes me about that is Jesus, what Jesus is calling them to is very likely going to look exactly like what they're doing. They've been doing the right things. They've been doing the good works. What he wants them to do is not to change what they're doing, but to make sure they know why they're doing it. 
That's what he wants them to do. He, what he wants to see changed in that church is their understanding of the why. Why do you do what you do? Well, I do it because I've always done it. No. I do it because it's always been done that way. No. I do it because if I don't do it, no one else will. No. And no. And no. Why do we do what we do? We do it for the love of Jesus. That's why we teach. That's why we preach. That's why we pray. It's why we read. It's why, it's why we do what we do. And if we're not careful, we just lose sight of that. And it becomes a habit. It becomes a thing. It becomes a routine. It becomes some comfortable little bookend to my week. But it's not powerful. It's got to be motivated by love. The love of the Lord. That's what he wants. He, Jesus is saying, serve me because you love me more than anything. Do the works of the kingdom because you know I'm worthy of those works. Do what you do. What you were created by God to do. Not begrudgingly. Not because you have to. Not because you always have. Not because no one else will if you won't. Do it for the love of Jesus. That's the motivation. That's what we want in this church. Is for Jesus to get the glory. Jesus is the goal. And so we put forth a ministry plan this year. I'm going to very briefly go over it with you. You want a, a fleshed out version, you can come to the meeting Friday and we'll, we'll have ministry plan available for you. And there's, a, there's actually an agenda for that right down there if you're interested. Uh, reports are there, so you can pick that up on your way out. And you'll see a bit of what I'm going to talk about. But very briefly, l let me share with you what I want us to commend to God in the new year. Um, and it's not just me. This is a lot of thinking and praying and planning. And then Chris is going to come and we're going to pray over it. So our kingdom initiatives with the love of Jesus is our motivation. Number one, prayer. As Justin mentioned, we want to be a prayer. It's part of our vision. We want to be a praying, growing church. We want to be a praying church, proclaiming and practicing dependence on God. One of the dangers of, of, of um, success, any apparent marker of success, is that you then begin to take credit for the success or think this is because we got this right or we found the formula or we did this or we did that. And what we really want to be is more comfortable saying, we don't know, Lord, what do you want? But Jesus is the head of the church. So we don't need to take credit for anything. We just need to listen. Okay, and then follow. That's our job. And so it isn't about us. And how do we listen and how do we follow? It's through this practice of prayer. So that's the first goal for us is to continue to become and to become even better at practicing our dependence on the Lord. The second thing that we commit to, to God for the love of Jesus is dealing with an issue of expansion. Making room for growth. We have a lot of people coming to worship here. Praise the Lord. And our mission is to make disciples. 
And we can't see us getting to a place where we say, I'm sorry, we can only make disciples 150 at a time. You're going to have to find another church and good luck with that. That's silly. God hasn't called us to that. The problem is he also hasn't sent the post-it note with the answer, which is what we've all been begging for for quite a while. And we've talked a bit about it and we keep begging for it. It still hasn't shown up. So we have to commit it to prayer. Lord, what are we going to do? Third initiative that we put before the Lord is biblical counseling. Getting the, getting the biblical counseling center up and running. Um, offering, it's just not a grief share, which is to the public, healing hearts to the public. Beginning to expand our counseling ministry and influence beyond our own body and the one anothering that we're able to do through the te- teaching and the training that we're receiving here. But going further out into the community with the gospel, with the good news, that's an exciting venture. Fourthly, there's there's be an emphasis in the new year on global mission, at least on the mission trip to the Dominican Republic. We would like to put together a team, if we could, of 10 or more willing to go to the Dominican in 2025. And in order for us to, for people like us to pull that off, we need to start planning in June of 2024. So when, when a memo comes out in October, we cannot make those decisions. I don't know if you've noticed this about us, but we don't make fast decisions. <laughs> it's just part of who we are. This is the DNA of United Baptist Church. It's a slow ride, but it's steady. You know, it, uh, uh, what is it, Eugene Peterson? A long obedience in the same direction. Okay, that's kind of that's kind of the way it is around here, and so we know that about ourselves. If we're going to be successful in putting together a team, we'll have to start early. If you're interested in that, we'd love to talk with you about that. Um, equipping the saints for ministry one of our goals in this new year is to have 100% of our members involved in serving somehow and you think well that is an audacious goal amen it absolutely is but we want 100% of our membership involved in meaningful service that is figuring out how did God make you what passions did he put in you where are you going to serve because he has made you to serve the body. In 1 Corinthians we read about that. But also to serve the world. And that's how he gets glory. So we want everybody kind of off the bench and on the floor. All at the same time. If that's a visual that makes you, gives you the heebie-jeebies, it does me too. You know, because you're used to watching team sports and five people are out there and the rest of us are cheering. But that doesn't work in church. So equipping the saints for ministry, uh, helping people realize how God has crafted them and how we can source you to be the person God wants you to be for his glory and for this church in the year to come. And then lastly and least compelling of all for most people is we have several facilities. We really need to figure out what we're going to do with them. And uh, we need to develop a comprehensive facilities plan. And that may seem like, well, somebody, uh, no, that's a, that's a congregational issue. Because people are constantly asking about these facilities. Can I do this? Can I do that? We need a comprehensive plan that allows us to answer those questions wisely. Yes, we can do this. No, we can't do that. And right now we lack that. So, uh, again, it's on there because that's what we're up to. And we want you to know what we're up to. That is the plan in a brief little nutshell again. You want more detail, come Friday night. Be happy to talk about it. Chris, 
is going to come and offer a pastoral prayer.